Welcome back to The Planet Today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, August 6th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how are you doing today? Matty, I am doing so well. How was your vacation, buddy? It was great. I'm feeling refreshed. I am feeling recharged. We have quite a few stories to catch up on from last week, but I am fired up to do it. Today is also the 10th episode of The Planet Today, so we're officially in double digits, Nick. Woo! Everyone pop a bottle of champagne for the 10th episode this Friday. Let's go. The haters are in shambles right now. The thought that we were going to quit after nine, but here we are (laughs) on the back nine. (laughs) to (laughs) ten. If you're new here, welcome to The Planet Today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're getting ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read another listener review on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting the show. Yes, so C.S. Francis says, love the breakdown to help understand and digest what's going on each week. Also appreciate mentioning the article title and author so that I can read and look up these articles as well. Thank you, C.S. Francis. That really means a lot. And we're glad you're also checking out some of the articles we link in the show notes. Um, If you haven't already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can give you a shout out on the show as a thank you, just like we did today for C.S. Francis. Right on, C.S. Francis. All right, so let's go ahead and get right ahead into our quick hits. So the first one is a short one from Nature.com's climate change team, and it's titled, How to Win Big for the Climate, Rain in the Super Polluters. So we've talked on the show previously about how 71% of the world's carbon emissions come from just 100 companies, and this article is another story in that sort of style. So Don Grant and some of his colleagues at the University of Colorado Boulder looked through data from 29,000 power plants across the world, and they found that just 5% of the world's power plants account for 73% of CO2 from electricity generation. For reference, the U.S. alone produced 1,724 million metric tons of CO2 in 2019 through electricity generation. And while this number has decreased over the decade leading up to it, thanks to natural gas and renewables starting to phase out coal, coal and natural gas are still the two largest sources of electricity. And this trend isn't unique to the U.S. So electricity generation is a really important part of lowering our global carbon emissions. Grant's team also found that extreme emitters, or power plants in the top 5% of carbon polluters, tended to be less efficient than average power plants in their home countries. If those power plants were to meet the global average efficiency, so we're not asking them to go above and beyond here, they would reduce emissions by 25%. If they were to switch from coal or oil to natural gas, global emissions from electricity generation could fall by almost 30%. Implementing carbon capture technology could further cut emissions almost in half. Now, carbon capture can be expensive and tough to establish, so I feel that switching to solar or wind tech would be better at reducing emissions than implementing carbon capture, and they would also reduce emissions more than switching to natural gas. Yeah, and this article didn't really get into it, but I was kind of hoping that they would name the specific power plants that were included in that 5%, just so I could maybe roast them on Twitter for a second. I don't know. 
Nick is all about canceling big power plants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm about canceling big milk and I'm canceling <laughs> power plants. All right. So the next one comes from Hiroko Tabuchi of the New York Times. And she writes, Toyota led on clean cars. Now critics say it works to delay them. So personally, I was extremely surprised by this because, and maybe it's just me, I feel like the Toyota Prius was one of the first hybrid electric and gas cars to really become popular. And Toyota now wants to focus on hydrogen fuel cell cars. They don't produce carbon emissions through gas consumption, but they're also less popular than electric vehicles when it comes to research and development. Toyota has long insisted that this tech is necessary for a carbon-free transportation future, and because of this, Toyota has opposed a full transition to electric vehicles. And opponents of this move will say, hey, you're opposing climate action by doing that. Chris Reynolds, a senior executive at Toyota, recently argued in a closed-door meeting that gas-electric hybrids like the Prius and hydrogen-powered cars should play a bigger role, according to four people who were familiar with the talks. From an economic standpoint, Toyota invested a lot of money into this technology, which is also costlier than electric vehicles. It's since fallen behind EVs in market trends, so they're probably doing this just to make sure that all the money they invested isn't wasted. From an environmental standpoint, let's not fight better technology just to promote something that may have not panned out the way you wanted it to. And rather than doubling down on hydrogen-powered cars, Toyota could embrace the electric vehicle transition and be a really strong part of it. Margot T. Ogie, a former senior official at the EPA, recently said, they really were on the right path, especially with the introduction of the Prius, and they still talk about climate change. But they're fighting policies for electric vehicles across the globe, and that's hurting the effort of policymakers in setting any ambitious measures. Yeah, I don't understand this, because if you actually cared about a carbon-free transportation future, like you mentioned, then why would you be like, oh, but not like this, you know, like not like that, because it's not as profitable for us. Yeah, I mean, I guess they were just in the wrong in what they chose to invest in, and, you know, they were ambitious. They they really kicked things off with the Prius, and they really wanted these hydrogen fuel cell cars to work out, but it's looking like they're not going to the way that electric vehicles are. So any sort of pushback on EVs is kind of just a hindrance in any climate action. All right. So this next one comes from Bloomberg Green and it is titled Nuclear Power Could Get Lifeline in Senate Infrastructure Bill. It was written by John Morgan and Ari Natter. There is a lot to break down when it comes to the Senate Infrastructure Bill. And according to a draft obtained by Bloomberg, the bipartisan infrastructure bill could send up to $6 billion to struggling nuclear power reactors. The authors note that the nuclear power industry has been threatened by a wave of reactor closings as it struggles to compete with cheaper electricity produced using natural gas and increasingly renewable energy. Currently, nuclear power provides about 19% of the nation's electricity, so this is an important thing to consider when looking at what is and what isn't worth saving as we modernize our infrastructure. While we're discussing the infrastructure bill, I just want to talk about some of the things that were left out of the bill to accomplish bipartisanship. There were several others we could discuss on this show, but since it's an environmental news show and not a general politics show, we're just going to keep it green here. So there will be $0 allocated to clean energy tax credits, where originally $363 billion were proposed. Public transit was reduced from $77 billion proposed to $39 billion in the bill. Electric vehicles will receive about $7.5 billion, where $15 billion was originally proposed. And that $7.5 billion must be split with efforts to build propane and natural gas infrastructure. 
And finally, public transit will receive $39 billion of the $77 billion that it was originally proposed to receive. So there's a lot of things that were cut. That way we would get some sort of consensus between the two parties. Um, Some positive notes on the bill. It does provide $73 billion to modernize the nation's electricity grid so that it can use more renewable energy. And that's the largest federal investment in power transmission ever. So that's really no small feat. And I want to highlight that that's awesome. Um, $7.5 billion are going to be allocated to clean buses and ferries, but that's not enough to electrify the 50,000 transit buses by 2026 that President Biden had promised. So hopefully we can make that up elsewhere. And then $300 million is being spent on developing carbon capture technology and storage for it um, from power plants. So that's another plus. Energy analysts say that the measures lay the groundwork to move the nation away from fossil fuels, but the bill does not mandate immediately reducing fossil fuel emissions. And personally, I worry that this could just prolong some of the issues that we really need to address ASAP. From a climate science perspective, it's kind of disappointing to hear some of the things that we are missing out on just because a 50-50 vote with a Democratic vice president in the White House as a tiebreaker is not considered a majority in the Senate. Um... But in any event, if you'd like to read the bill in full or look up more about it, it's called H.R. 3684. So, Matt, I actually have a question for you, and I'm assuming that other people listening to this might have the same question. I actually don't know what the verdict is on nuclear power. Like, is it safe? Is it good for the environment? Like, I always just think of, like, Chernobyl. I'm like, no, bad. Okay, so funny you mentioned that because uh, there is no verdict on it, and that's probably why you don't know the verdict on it. Um, On the one hand, it produces a ton of electricity, it's very efficient, and in the reaction, there's no carbon produced. So when you look at it, it's technically green energy. The issue comes with the fallout and, you know, uranium storage, because in those nuclear power reactions, there's a lot of uranium that's produced, and that's a radioactive material that needs to get stored somewhere. So personally... I don't support new nuclear reactors being built because I kind of view it as like this old tech that should be phased out as we implement more renewables. Right. But if the option is stop using coal, use nuclear while solar and wind become more abundant, that's great. If it's phase out nuclear and use more coal and more natural gas, that's where it gets kind of dicey. So I'm not going to call myself like a nuclear energy hater. But I hope in 20 years time, we aren't using coal, we aren't using natural gas, and we aren't using nuclear energy. Um, But, you know, that's going to come with time and science developing further. Gotcha. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. So let's go ahead and move on to the next one. And it's actually some cool news coming out from our friends across the pond. Uh, So the BBC's climate change team wrote, most powerful tidal turbine starts generating electricity off the coast of Orkney. Yeah, so the pictures in this article alone are worth checking out because it's a massive 74-meter or 243-foot floating turbine that weighs 680 tons. So we're talking about 1.36 million pounds of just hydroelectric turbine machinery. It's Jeez. it's really cool to look at. <laughs> um, so the unit can provide 2,000 homes in Scotland with electricity for the next 15 years, So, honestly, just an awesome development. And there's a cable that goes beneath the water that connects it to the local electricity network. 
And that also provides power to an onshore electrolyzer to generate green hydrogen. So it's a carbon-free form of energy helping to power the generation of another carbon-free form of energy. So I don't know what the opposite of killing two birds with one stone is. It's like saving two birds with one nest, I guess. That's <laughs> kind of what this is doing. Um, <laughs> and, and like Nick said before, when he was bringing up hydrogen, um, you know, what's the verdict on it? And again, with green hydrogen here, it has some negative side effects with uranium storage that make me nervous. Um, so I do view it as a transitional sort of energy. But in this scenario, it seems great. So the project was developed by Orbital, whose chief executive stated, our vision is that this project is the trigger to the harnessing of tidal stream resources around the world to play a role in tackling climate change whilst creating a new low carbon industrial sector. The ocean generates massive amounts of energy through its tides, so harnessing that could be a great way to get to net zero carbon emissions faster than we're already on track to. Yeah, this is a really cool idea, and hopefully Orbital can produce a bunch more of these bad boys. Uh, my only concern is that with like a big underwater turbine like this one was, I feel like you could be affecting marine wildlife that swims underneath it or even near it. Definitely a valid concern. And I can't speak for orbital directly here, but I know that um, in grad school, I had to do some offshore wind projects where we would analyze like where would be a good spot off the Atlantic coast to put in offshore wind farms. And part of that in the United States, at least, is an environmental impact assessment where you look at where will this have the lowest impact on marine life? Ah, gotcha. I don't know about the United Kingdom or Scotland's rules and regulations there, but I would imagine it's at the very least similar. So, Gotcha. Oh, super interesting. Did not know that. All right. So let's get into the next one. So this one comes from Business Green, where Bia Tridimas reports drink driving. Glenfiddich delivery trucks to run on biogas made from whiskey waste. Yeah, so uh, whoever says we don't talk about enough good news on here is in for a rude awakening this show, because this <laughs> is a very cool one also coming out of Scotland. Glenfiddich announced a closed circuit transport initiative last week, which includes converting waste from their distilling process into low carbon biogas. The distillery, which is based out of Dufftown, Scotland, estimates that each truck powered by this biogas can replace up to 250 tons of CO2 each year compared to its diesel trucks. They further estimate that that has the same impact as planting 4,000 trees or displacing fossil fuel gas from 112 homes per year. Compared to fossil fuels, the biogas cuts CO2 emissions by 95% and reduces other harmful emissions by up to 99%, according to the firm. The company also indicated that they plan to make this technology available to other whiskey companies within the industry, which I find really cool. So one quote I wanted to bring up is from Stuart Watts, who is William Grant & Sons Distillery's director. And just for reference, William Grant & Sons is the parent company that owns Glenfiddich. He says, it has taken more than a decade for Glenfiddich to become the first distillery to process 100% of its waste residues on its own site then to be the first to produce those residues into biogas fuels to power its trucks, and finally, to be the first to install a biogas truck fueling station supplied by our own on-site renewable energy facility. We are proud of these renewable energy breakthroughs in our industry as we scale up the decarbonizing benefits of this closed-loop process across our entire transport fleet. And uh, Nick, I think I speak for both of us when I say we are an anti-drunk driving podcast, but converting whiskey to biogas is a really cool trend. 
So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say we are officially a pro drink driving, as the author calls it, podcast. I think this is so cool too. And I hope that other distilleries follow suit because dad joke inbound. Here we go. Glenn Fittick just raised the bar. It's a top shelf move by them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to hate myself for that when I edit this later, but (laughs) so let's go ahead and close out the quick hits for this week with a cool story about the Olympics. EcoWatch published John Marshall's article, Tokyo Olympics medals were made with tons of recycled smartphones, laptops donated by the public. Another cool feel-good story to close us out for all of those who, like myself, are concerned with the amount of e-waste that we generate. Some estimate that billions of dollars worth of precious metals are discarded each year by people throwing away or burning their smartphones, their iPads, their computers, etc. And the Japanese government mobilized their people to contribute to the Olympic Games by setting up donation pickup sites for these devices. And 90% of Japanese cities, towns, and villages participated in the program. So, I mean, anytime you can get 90% of anyone to do anything, that's substantial. And the fact that 90% of the country was like, yeah, this sounds great. That's pretty cool. So the recycled materials were enough to produce 5,000 bronze, silver, and gold medals through receiving 70 pounds of gold, 7,700 pounds of silver, and 4,850 pounds of bronze from almost 80 tons of small electronic devices. The 2016 games in Rio saw 30% of the sterling silver used to make gold and silver medals come from recycled car parts and mirrors, but people are hopeful that these games will set a precedent for Paris in 2024 and the rest of the games moving forward. The UN estimates that roughly 16 pounds of e-waste was generated per person in 2019, making it the fastest growing domestic waste stream. So recycling these materials for use in an event as big as the Olympics is pretty awesome. Yeah, this is so, so cool. Like, I think it, it makes the metal probably even more valuable. I know, like, it's real sterling silver on the other ones, whatever. But I think it's way cooler this way. And I also feel like the 90% thing is insane. I don't think we could get Americans... I don't think we could get 50% of Americans to do anything. Yeah, I mean, there was pushback on, like, wearing seatbelts back in the day. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> hey, if you get in a car accident, which hopefully you don't, this thing will be really handy. <laughs> and people are like, no, yeah, it cuts off my shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, shout out to the, uh, the 90% of Japanese people who were on board with this. And, uh, yeah, that's it. We're not going to re- mention the 10% of uh, deserters. All right. So I think that does it for the quick hits for the week. And I believe that we are going to take a break right here. Let's do it. What a week, baby. We are back. We are back. And right after we get back, we will be talking about the Netflix documentary Varunga. Nick, I was banging chains a lot last week. I love disc golf, and there's a course pretty close to where I was on vacation, so I played a few rounds last week. My disc towel was great for wiping off the morning dew or the dirt off my discs, but there was only one item I trusted for my hands. Matt, there's only one that I trust on my hands no matter where I go, where I am, and who I'm with. That must be the same item, Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief. It's a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. 
Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Don't be caught off guard. Keep the Alta on you. Welcome back to The Planet Today. As Nick mentioned before the break, and as we mentioned last week, we watched the Netflix documentary from 2014, Virunga, for this week's episode of The Planet Today. A summary of the documentary from IMDb states, In the forested depths of eastern Congo lies Virunga National Park, one of the most biodiverse places in the world and home to the last of the mountain gorillas. In this wild but enchanted environment, a small and embattled team of park rangers, including an ex-soldier turned ranger, a carer of orphan gorillas, and a Belgian conservationist, protect this UNESCO World Heritage Site from armed militia, poachers, and the dark forces struggling to control Congo's rich natural resources. When the newly formed M23 rebel group declares war in May of 2012, a new conflict threatens the lives and stability of everyone and everything they worked so hard to protect. So, Nick, before we dive right into it, I was looking up some background info on this movie just to kind of, you know, get a feel for what was going on. And originally, it was supposed to just be a documentary about the incredible biodiversity of the park. Uh, but when they were getting ready to move the crew out there and start filming, that's when the M23 Rebel group declared war. So timing had a, I don't know if funny is the right word, but timing had an interesting way of coming around on this one. Yeah, I mean, like, luckily they had a journalist right there to to cover this and a whole camera crew. Like, literally, some of the shots that they got were insane. Like, I mean, they were, I'm not going to use the word fortunate to be there, but they were lucky to have, you know, got this all on tape and then then able to show it to the entire world and show them the gross misconduct that was happening in, in the Congo. Yeah, and, and it's crazy, too, to think about, like, I'm sure... A lot of our listeners have seen Planet Earth uh, with David Attenborough. Excuse me, with Sir David Attenborough. <laughs> um, I, I love those episodes. It's just a really, really cool series. And to kind of put it on par here, David Attenborough's team goes out to a lot of these fantastical, biodiverse regions just to record animals. And then he gets the pleasure of narrating over it because he's a huge environmentalist with one of the best voices of all time. Oh, by far. But imagine his team going out there and they're like, we're going to take a look at tigers in Siberia. And then all of a sudden a war breaks out. Like that's what happened here in a nutshell, which is just crazy, crazy timing. Yeah. And I give them credit too, for sticking it out, like staying. Yeah. And like they were under gunfire at some parts, like there were some hairy situations in that um, documentary and they stuck it out the whole time. I give them major credit. We'll get into that later though. I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that more. That's one of the things I actually want to talk about in, in detail. So I'm glad you brought it up, but all right, let's, let's start off where they start off. Um, the history of African colonization in the 1800s and deforestation in the Congo. I felt that that was a very strong place to start for me because um, it kind of highlights the deep history of colonization in Africa 
and the relationship between colonies and the colonizers over using up the resources in lands that they don't live in. Um, and you know, this is one of those regions where that's happened a lot. They go on to highlight the civil war and the genocide in Rwanda, political instability in the region and fighting over the resources that we mentioned. And this is important because the Rwandan civil war spilled over into the democratic Republic of Congo because of the religious groups fighting in both countries. So, you know, you have this instability that's, it, it doesn't really know borders. It's a region that's kind of consumed by this. And a lot of that dates back to the 1800s when people came in and said, we don't live here, but this is ours now. And we're going to send all of your wood, all of your oil back to our country for our people to use. Um, and unfortunately, that leads to a lot of turmoil. So oil discovery in 2010 in Virunga National Park created a fight between saving the last of the mountain gorillas and the idea of development. And when I say development, I don't mean creating structures. I mean economic development, um, which you know comes with creating structures. But people weren't really looking to build in the park. They were looking to cut down areas to go drill oil, take it out, and then leave that part kind of barren. And that rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, and they were going in to destroy the park. I think you're being even nice. Like, they were going in to completely rid the land of its natural resources. And it's kind of like the episode we did last, or a couple weeks ago with fracking, like, just destroy the land. And then also, the fact that it's Virunga National Park is Africa's oldest park. Like, that is, in itself enough to just come on, like save the land. My goodness. Yeah. It's like, imagine people coming into America that, you know, it's not their, not their area. Right. And they come in and they're like, Hey, this Yellowstone national park looks like an awesome spot to drill oil. People would be up in arms. Absolutely. In 2012 instability returned to the region, which is where the documentary really kind of kicks off past the intro. And we meet several gorilla caretakers and one talks about the issue with poaching, and he says that poachers think they can kill the parents and then sell baby gorillas. And when that's happened, the gorilla caretakers have been able to bring them in into their orphanage for care. And they introduce us to some of the gorillas, including Kaboko and Maisha. Um, Kaboko lost his hand due to poachers, along with his family. And the whole time when I was watching this, the thing that really jumped out at me is just how human-like gorillas are. I think anyone who watched this, like, it's tough to see something struggle, especially when it's something where, like, you look at their hands and their eyes yeah. and their faces and you're like, they're not all that different. Yeah, you mentioned their hands. That's the first thing I saw. They had, like, a, a close-up shot on the hand. And it was like, wow, I can see literally his fingernails. Like, yeah. we have the exact same finger structure. Like, these animals can are basically humans. Like, they feel, they hug each other. Like one time in the movie there, they like, um, I think it was Kaboko, like hits one of the, one of the, uh, other gorillas. And then like right after he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Like he literally like hugs her. It was like so crazy to see that. Yeah. It's like gor gorillas and orangutans and a lot of the greater apes, they seem to show true empathy towards each other. Um, and there's a lot of animals out there that do that. And I, I just, I'm, I'm the reason we're talking about gorillas here is because it's in the documentary, but it just really stood out to me how human like they are. And I, I think that almost makes you, if you're not already outraged about poaching, it kind of makes you outraged. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, for me, it got me even more fired up. <laughs> <laughs> 
So another thing that jumped out at me was when the park ranger talked about 130 of his fellow rangers dying in efforts to protect the park. And that kind of just shows the stark contrast to the park ranger jobs that we think of here versus those in areas that are prone to poaching. Like there's, I'm not taking anything away from park rangers in the U S but a lot of what they're doing is search and rescue and making sure people value the park and making sure that the park does not get ruined or that people don't die on the trails. The people here are sometimes and and oftentimes fighting for their lives because poachers are trying to come in and get a big haul of elephant tusks or rhino horns or baby gorillas and the rangers are trying to stop them and the poachers if they're not opposed to killing endangered species they're probably not opposed to killing a park ranger to get it done so you know just kudos to these people who are risking their lives day in and day out to protect nature yeah they deserve all the credit in the world that was an incredible display of integrity and compassion for the animals that they were protecting Yeah, and the same park ranger refers to his son's generation and says, we don't want people of his generation to inherit a world or a country as broken as ours. And God, that quote just like, it broke my heart because you're seeing these people who, like we said, are risking their lives. And it truly seems to be for the greater good of, we need to make sure that the next generation has it better than us. And it's just like, it just hit, it just hit me. Yeah, that's just such a classic like parent feeling. Just like I want my kids to have a better life than I did. So yeah, I think that was something we could all kind of empathize with right away. Yeah, and then the provincial director of Virunga National Park, Emmanuel de Marode, had to address the Rangers about the fighting between the M23 rebel group and the Congolese army. And this was another thing that just absolutely shocked me because as these people who have grown accustomed to protecting the park and the mountain gorillas from poachers, are now kind of just thrown into the middle of this civil war that broke out between the army and a rebel group. So it's like, you know, they're already fighting their own battles and they're already trying to make sure that all of the animals in the park remain safe. And now all of a sudden they're in between the nation's army, which is huge, and the rebel group, which is huge. And they're just smack dab in the center. So it's not an easy job. (laughs) It's the short of it. Yeah. At one point in the movie, he's like, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place right now. For sure. And then, um, you know, later on, there's um, a man, Andre Balma, and he talks about guerrilla psychology. And I, you know, it, it kind of jumped out at me. It's like the same thing that some of my friends who are zookeepers have said where, he, well, he says, as the gorillas grow bigger and get older, they get smarter. You need to truly know the gorillas to take care of them. And this is where it reminded me of my zookeeper friends because it shows the genuine bond that these gorilla caretakers form with the animals that are in need of their help. And, you know, I have some friends that worked in the camel barn at the Bronx zoo. And like, you can tell when certain camels are acting differently and like what they need just as you develop that bond. And this was another one of those things where I, I just thought it was cool to see that they are going above and beyond to take care of these animals because they care about them on an individual level and not just on a, I like gorillas level. (laughs) So another thing that Nick and I wanted to bring up was kind of the uplifting nature of how the community cared a lot about Virunga National Park. Nick had mentioned how it was the first national park in the country. And there's a scene where Rodrigue Magaroka Katembo says, the people think that the park will make things better. And 
to me, it's kind of cool to just see the importance of nature and animals to the people there because I look at parks as a way to make things better. I look at at a place where like everything just kind of grounds you and, you know, you feel at home amongst the trees and amongst the animals and to see them all celebrating this, I, I thought it was really cool. Yeah. And not only like, like you're talking about, like the emotional ties that you get and like the humbling parts of nature that are so awesome. And the reason that we love national parks, but also especially for this country, it's important for tourism. Like you need to have tourism dollars. That's what drives the economy. And I think they bring that up also in in the documentary, but that's also just as important. Yeah. Yeah. And along with tourism, they also talk about fishing in the park and how it like provides life for the people. So you're right. There's, there's a lot of economic benefits as well to this park remaining safe and remaining open and remaining natural. Um, earlier, Nick brought up the journalist that was at the park, uh, Melanie Gobi, and God, her story was so interesting. Like she wanted to be a war correspondent and she left home to work as a freelance journalist who also taught women about journalism. And then she arrived in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I think she said it was like days before the M23 conflict broke out. So again, just timing has a very, very interesting way of working out sometimes where she wanted to be a war correspondent, accepted a job not doing that. And all of a sudden she's in the center of the civil war. And she mentions how Congo has felt the impacts of foreign actors using their natural resources for centuries, and that's brought a lot of violence to the country. So Emmanuel de Marode, who we mentioned earlier, brings up how Soko, which is the oil company that wanted to develop and drill for oil in the park, they're traded on the London Stock Exchange, and they have a reputation for going after controversial projects in difficult environments, and that leads to large profits for them. And the issue here is that more than half of their concession is in Virunga National Park, which is a World Heritage Site. Now, World Heritage Sites under Congolese and international law have restrictions on oil ventures, making them totally illegal in these sites. Soko announced their intentions to explore for oil around Lake Edward in the park, and then they kind of forced their way in after being informed that, hey, that's illegal. So, you know, we're, we're not really looking at the most ethical company, it seems here. And the documentary goes on to talk about how they denied the allegations. They did everything legally. But you watch the documentary and tell me what you think. And then sticking with Soko here, Melanie Gobi going undercover to talk about Soko's oil exploration was just wild to me. Um, Nick, another thing you mentioned earlier was like the dangerous situations that people get into in documentaries. And here's another one where like, I'm just amazed that she was sitting there at a dinner table with an oil exec for what seems like shady company. And she's probably just recording on her phone. Like the footage was pretty choppy and it didn't look like the guy knew she was recording. And she's doing all this for the sake of journalism and making an awesome documentary. So man, just more kudos to her for putting herself in this situation where she's getting the shot and she's getting a lot of useful information, but I would be, Terrified. Yeah, I would be doing a number two in my pants. Uh, <laughs> this takes enormous amounts of courage. And like it wasn't just um, the the oil exec. She was meeting with a bunch of different people that definitely like could do very bad things to her. And she was really, really um, strong in getting confessions. Like they were basically just confessing right to her face. Yeah. Uh, and obviously they don't know that they're on camera, but it was just wild to see how quickly they were just like talking about it, almost like 
braggadociously. Yeah, and she gets the guy to basically admit that Emmanuel de Marode is using the power he has to stand in the way of oil development, and it makes it so that Soko's problem becomes the park itself. Um, and, and like you said, that's not even the most dangerous situation she's in. Yeah. Like, next she goes to sit down with a member of the M23 rebel group, and I would like to add that that really concerned me at first. And then the, there's a quote that jumped out at me. I forget where it's from. I forget who first said it, but it's someone's rebel is someone else's freedom fighter. So the man she sits down with, like he very well could have just been happy to tell his side of the story to her. Um, regardless, it seems like a dicey situation to me, and it takes a lot more courage than I would have to to sit down with someone like that. So, you know, all, all the kudos in the world to this entire documentary crew, to be honest. Absolutely. So the next scene I wanted to bring up was just pretty gruesome and uh, I definitely struggled to watch it, but it's, it's important to bring up. There's a scene where rangers come across the carcass of an elephant who had its tusks, the upper part of its jaw and its trunk removed by chainsaws. And my first thought is, God, poaching is just the worst. And, you know, later we, we come to learn that they felt that it was a military style operation and that it was probably the work of the rebels. And who knows? I mean, that could be getting them the money they need to fund their operation and get more soldiers recruited and get more weapons and ammunition. Um, either way, it makes it hard to side with people when they're going to take down elephants like that. Yeah, this was completely gruesome to watch, like almost had to look away. It just like was a raving fu basically to the people who work in the park and the park rangers and, and Emmanuel himself. So yeah, that was definitely a scary part in this documentary. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could say we're moving on to a, a happier topic, but the next one I think is the, the scariest part in the entire movie for me. Melanie is in a town that the M 23 takes over as the Congolese army flees. Like, could you imagine you're a journalist, you're a war correspondent and you're actually in the thick of it. And rather than freaking out, she calmly makes phone calls to let the right people know what's going on. At one point, she's like, hey, it's Melanie. The M23 is taking over. Uh, all right, let them know. And she's like, what in the world? <laughs> the strength, the courage, yeah. the bravery, like all of those things that just kind of combine for her to make that phone call. Whereas I, like, I would be crying. Yeah, even having like the um, emotional capacity to like not be like... Like, I, I always think I'm like, if I had to call 911, would I even be able to do it? Because I'd just be like freaking out, like my hands would be just shaking and stuff. This girl was like rock solid. I'm on the phone with the right people and I'm calling everyone I know to tell them M23 is coming through. Yeah, and then, so shortly after she gets off the phone, we see Emmanuel find out that there's only enough gorilla food to last two days as the M23 move in. So the park rangers prepare to stand their ground against the M23 and... Something that just like, I don't know why it took this moment to click for me, but as they're all getting their, their guns ready and like getting ready to protect their quarters and protect the gorillas, there's a camera crew there that's just recording all of this. <laughs> like they didn't sign up to be war correspondents, potentially. I don't, I don't know what they did and didn't sign up for, but knowing that the documentary was supposed to just be about biodiversity like that same crew very well could just be there and they're like, yeah, I love animals. I love parks. I can't wait to do this. And then all of a sudden they're just like recording rangers who are getting ready to stand their ground. Yeah. And this is like you said before, like David Attenborough, think about it like that. Like David Attenborough is there 
and he's just making a classic like life of the planet whatever it is like our planet and then a war breaks out and wherever it is like that's what these people faced yeah I know this stuff happens during wars but to watch a group actually take over a town was kind of surreal like you only really see that in movies not so much in the documentaries so to, so to watch it happen was like eerie I guess is the word I'm looking for we go back to the gorilla caretakers and uh, we just want to say R.I.P. Kaboko who was the gorilla who had gotten sick earlier in the documentary um, yeah you could just see the grief in the other gorilla's eyes and like it just kind of hammered home the point of how human like gorillas are and how you know I feel all all animals are worthy of our protection but even more so endangered species and endangered mountain gorillas because they're they're not all that different from us yeah and um Andre was right there literally the whole time like he was 100% prepared to protect them at all costs like if the if the M23 had came in and tried to take them away whatever the case may be he was prepared to put his life on the line basically for them that took enormous courage yeah and then you know we see goma become a ghost town and it said that 60,000 people got displaced many people were shot and almost died and many other people did die so soka's stock is rising as this is all going on and god i was just like infuriated to see them basically funding all of this tragedy and as the town and the people who live in it feel like their lives are falling apart soka's stock is just rising and it's it's like again at what cost yeah it was extremely hard to watch um frustrating to watch aggravating whatever the word is just made me think like soko is just a piece of trash company that's all i could think of the whole movie yeah i'm totally with you and the fallout after the documentary is just as jaw-dropping so Rodriguez attempts to prevent Soko agents from building an illegal structure in the park. And it said that the next day he was arrested, tortured and held without charge for 17 days. And then Emmanuel filed a report on Soko's activities to Congolese authorities. And it said shortly thereafter, he was ambushed by gunmen on his way back to the park. He also survived several gunshot wounds. Soko said they would halt operations in June of 2014, but did not do so when this documentary was released. Um, and then Soko denied that their operations are illegal and said that they will never seek operations in the mountain gorilla habitat, Virunga volcanoes, or the Virunga equatorial rainforest. But I don't know, man. Like, you can say something's legal, that doesn't make it moral. And this seemed illegal, but even if it was legal, it was definitely, definitely immoral. Absolutely. And I just want to call out this guy because he's, he's the founder and still CEO of, it's not Soko International anymore. It's now Pharos Energy. That's P-H-A-R-O-S. And I just want to call out that he is still the CEO of Pharos Energy, previously Soko International. So Ed's story, call him out. Yeah, let's get um, hashtag resign Ed story at Planet Today Pod trending on Twitter. <laughs> I will start that charge. Yeah, and some good news. Uh, this movie did lead to public pressure for Soko to pull out of the park, which they finally reluctantly did. Um, but unfortunately, violence has been ongoing for the past seven years here as tourists and rangers have been ambushed by rebel groups recently. Park rangers have been quoted as wishing they could be more conservationists and less soldiers, but unfortunately they're outnumbered by the armed groups that live within the park or just come in for ambushes. Civilians in the park have also developed a bit of a distrust for park rangers. Um, 
It said that partly this is because park rangers have a hard time identifying who's a civilian and who's a rebel, which is often a problem with guerrilla warfare. Um, Gorilla is G-U-E-R-I-L-L-A, not gorilla the animal. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's just a a tough all around situation, and you know, my heart goes out to the the people there and the park rangers there, just trying to do the right thing. it's it's tough. And for more information about the movie, you can go to varungamovie.com or you can donate to the park directly to help their conservation efforts at varunga.org. Nick, before we wrap things up, what was the most impactful scene for you? Um, I think it has to be uh, when they bring in the civilian who's been shot in the leg. Like this guy has had nothing to do with the war. He's still in normal clothes when they bring him in and like he might never have two legs to walk on again. And like same thing, there's also a five-year-old boy who needed a blood transfusion because he was shot. And I was just like, this company, Soko, like this company brought so much tragedy and like it was just so completely unnecessary and like for just straight profit. And I just, I have no patience for that at all. Yeah, that scene was was really tough, especially... You know, like you said, they they did nothing wrong. They had nothing. They had no reason to be involved in that. And civilian casualties are always just kind of, I think, the worst part about wars. Um, Absolutely. The the scene that impacted me the most is actually probably two or three minutes before the scene you're talking about. Um, it's where everything goes silent as the M23 takes over, and there's a tank that fires around. And then right after you see a gorilla run into the forest and you see people being displaced and it's just like immediately apparent to me, I guess the impact on the people and animals nearby, it's just, yeah, yeah, it was, it was jarring to watch. And then what was your key takeaway from the film as a whole? I think it's gotta be that it only takes like a few completely soulless individuals to just like be responsible for so much unnecessary hardship and essentially just tear a country apart and like and especially to do it just for money yeah it's like that old adage greed is good from uh wall street the movie i i I can't disagree with anything more than i disagree with that statement absolutely it's like I, i think greed is pretty bad and equity is equity is good you know pulling up people from hardship is good and we saw Soko's stock rising as this is all going on. So, you know, I, I don't think their greed is helping anyone. No, not at all. My key takeaway was, you know, the guerrilla caretakers are in a position that they absolutely do not deserve to be in. And they seem to be handling it way better than I would. Um, just their, their, I guess, selflessness in protecting the animals and protecting the species as a whole. It, it just jumped out at me as like they were doing incredible work. Yeah, they deserve an enormous amount of credit for being so resilient. Yeah, and just sticking it out. Um, And then last one, same scale as the last documentary we reviewed. On a scale of wouldn't recommend to I loved it, what would you rate Virunga? This is tough because I wouldn't say that I loved it, but I would say that you should absolutely watch it and that I endorse it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I thought it was great and that doesn't mean I really enjoyed it. It means it was very, very well done. Yeah. Um, in, in doing so, 
it was also very tough to watch. Absolutely. So um, I will give this one a damn as my <laughs> official rating because that's what I said like so many times throughout them. Like so many things would happen and I'm just like, damn, that is heavy. Um, yeah, it, it was very heavy. Yeah, but overall, I mean, shouts to the camera crew, shouts to the people who were there on the ground filming this because they there's a reason they won so many awards for this doc. Yeah, absolutely. They deserve all the credit in the world for it. All right, and that'll do it for this week's episode of The Planet Today. Next week, we will be back in the studio with another episode for your ears to enjoy. And we are going to be joined once again by guest co-host CJ Bonafati, who joined us for episode two, I believe. Um, until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod, or you can email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you shared the show with a friend, whether that's texting them the episode or sharing our posts on social media. It really helps, and you know, it takes two clicks of a button to do it. So please help me out and help Nick out, and we will <laughs> help you out by making awesome shows. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, send it in. If you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, send us their contact info. We have a couple awesome, awesome, awesome guests coming up in the next weeks and months, and we'd like to keep that train rolling. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, even if you listen on Google or Spotify. The reviews on Apple help the show grow the most. If you don't feel like this show is worth five stars, you can let us know by giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment saying, hey, do this better. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are produced every week by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and it is B-U-D. L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Check me out. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Tweet hashtag cancel Ed's story at the Planet Today pod. Wait, I got it. I got it. It's hashtag Ed's story is his story at Planet Today pod. Oh, I love that even better. I like that even better. Peace. <laughs>